Ephesians chapter 2, all right? Ephesians chapter 2. This is a a well-known part of the Bible, very well-known. It's a verse or a group of verses that you're going to hear kind of over and over again throughout your lives, and may it never become a consistent, repetitious thing, uh, like when your mom has been calling your name and you just don't hear her. You know what I mean? You ever ever get in trouble because you you genuinely didn't hear your mom, but she's like, I've been calling you for five minutes. It happens. Why? It's not that she hasn't been calling you. It's that you've learned to to tune her out. Her voice has become normal, and to you, it's just the same thing, and so you kind of shut it down or tune her out. We can do that with God sometimes, that he's calling to us, and he wants to speak something to us, and maybe it's like, oh, I've already heard that, or this is a verse I know, and maybe for a lot of you, this is the first time you're hearing it, or it's one of the few times you're hearing it, but over your life, may the word of God never grow cold. Be very careful that you don't grow callous to, oh, I've heard this verse, or I already know that, or I've been there and done that. That it's in the word, it is alive and living, which means that today God wants to do a work in you, not something big later on down the road. Maybe it is something small, but something that will begin a really long journey. As we talk about these things, it's interesting to realize that what we talk about is in the context of believers. What Paul writes to, it's not non-believers, This is not an evangelistic crusade. He's not out at the park. Uh, He's not down at the movie theaters. He's not at Starbucks or McDonald's trying to save the lost. He's encouraging people who are already saved. And yet he begins this chapter talking about who they were and reminds them of who they are. We're talking about today the title, if you like them, if you want to write something down. It's our position versus our past. A lot of times we live in our past. You might grow up hearing, uh, I remember I loved it. I rarely got to see my dad, but once a year we'd go camping or go to the river with his friends. And my favorite thing as a little kid was to sit there and listen to them tell stories. I don't know if you guys like listening to older people talk about their stories. It's super entertaining. Sometimes it's hilarious. And especially as a little boy, you just think, this is amazing. But as you grow up, you realize there are some people who talk about the here and the now, and there are other people who talk about what they did 10 years ago as if it were yesterday. It's fun to look back, and it's fun to talk about what has happened, but we've got to recognize we don't live in what we did last year. We don't live in what happened five years ago. We live in right now. We don't want to walk around in the glory days of who we used to be. We want to walk in who we are. And Paul tells them, look it, this is who you were. And he begins to encourage them and challenge them. Walk in who you are and you are in Christ. I wonder how often we get up and do our daily thing unaware that when we go and we live our lives, we're to live our lives in Christ. That we are indeed his workmanship created for good works. There's a plan. There's a purpose. There's a reason. This is an amazing book. And in this book, this is an amazing chapter. Let's pray. Lord, as we direct our eyes and our ears, and Lord, I pray, gosh, Lord, our minds, we wouldn't just absorb this like we do everything else in the world, but we'd think about it. And God, that we wouldn't just understand, but Lord, our hearts would, it would take root. Lord, that you change our perspective, Lord, of ourselves, if necessary, of the world, absolutely. But Lord, would your word never fall upon deaf ears? Will this not be something that we've heard before? 
God, that you'd begin something new in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, he reminds them, he starts off talking about how the church is alive. It is not this broken down building. It's not some cold, hard shell of a place. It's not made up of lights and chairs. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you have been made alive. Take a look at the first couple of verses in chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit. This is a direct reference to Satan. You walked after Satan, maybe unaware of it, but nonetheless, he was your master at the time. The course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now is still working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also conducted ourselves. He says, this is who you were and this is who I was. So before we come to Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. As we talk, we're talking about post-salvation, but he reminds them, look it, he reminds them of who they were to get their attention about what they are. We're to live in who we are. We're to look at the now. We're to live in the now and not just dwell on the past. And I don't want to presume for a second that every single person in here has bowed their knee to Jesus. It's interesting. He writes this to believers. Why would Paul write this stuff to people who have already chosen to believe in Jesus? It's an interesting question. Why is he bringing up the past? Why is he pointing out that they were dead in their trespasses and sins? What's so important that I think by default we landslide right back into our beginnings. We go right back to the very beginning if we don't keep pressing forward. Dead in our trespasses and sins. You and I know, if you're saved, you know that's true. That before we come to Jesus, we're as good as dead. In my mind, I think of a conveyor belt, and at the end it just falls off into the pit of hell, and on it are all these coffins, and they're just chugging along, and inside there's people sitting there just having a great old time. They got their toys, and they got their friends. And, hey, how are you doing? And they're all excited because they have their few things in life, but that what they don't recognize is they're as good as dead. It's just a matter of time till it falls off the end. Paul says, for us, the end has changed. He says, you've been made alive in Christ, that you are no longer dead. He's made you alive, but don't forget, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he says, so was I. No one's born saved. No one is born a believer. And I want to challenge you guys. It's not about the date and time. When I look back, I hate that question when people say, well, how old were you when you got saved? I don't really specifically exactly know. I don't. I wish I did it. It's a question I can't wait to ask the Lord. Lord, when did I get saved? Like, you don't know the date you got saved? I, I, I can't pinpoint it. And maybe some of you guys, if I say, hey, when did you got, get saved? Maybe you don't know the date and time, but I'll tell you right now, salvation is not made up of a date and time as much as it is, is a revelation and a decision. When was it that it was revealed to you, you got it? I don't care that maybe you grew up through children's ministry or you didn't. I don't care that you've gone to church for a long time or this is your first day. I don't care that you know all the Bible stories or you've never opened a Bible a day in your life. I don't care. Is there a moment that you can point back to and say, that was the day it was revealed, I got it. It became real, and the decision was mine to make, and so I made it, to bow my knee to Jesus. I know where I was when that happened, but what was the time, what was the day, I, I don't know. And I don't know about dates and times with you, but is there a point that you can point back to and say, that man, I know there was a day 
that I bowed my knee to Jesus, that I gave him my whole heart. He tells him, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, so was I. Isn't that awesome? Paul reassures him, hey, we're on the same road. Right? If there's only one way, and it's a narrow path, and only few find it, but a bunch of people are on it, how awesome. We're not spread out. We're, in fact, to be unified, marching along, going in the same direction, and we're not alone. And the church is to be alive and living. Why would Paul write people that are already saved? I think sometimes we forget who we are. And if we forget who we are, we start acting like who we were. It happens. It happens still. Right? I'm 17 now. I'm getting older. And I'm just kidding. I'm 30 stinking too. But do you guys ever have that problem where you unintentionally are mean to somebody? And then you're blown away by your own actions? You're like, what's wrong with me? You're more upset with you than your parents are. You're more let down by yourself than your friends are. You guys, I go through that. Sometimes I turn around and walk away like, I'm a jerk. Where did that come from? That's not who I want to be. Because when we're not walking in the spirit, we will walk in the flesh. That if we don't walk in who we are, then we will begin to act like who we were. And we'll begin to look like that dead man, though we are alive. Think about Peter in Galatia, right? We talked about Galatians yesterday. Remember when Paul, we talked about, he came up and he said, what the heck's wrong with you, Peter? You're preaching to them salvation and grace and the, the law. You're not bound to it anymore. And yet Peter, he'd done the same thing. He was free. He had already preached to the 5,000 and people got saved on the Temple Mount, all this crazy stuff. And then Peter that day, for whatever reason, because he forgot who he was in Christ, began to act like who he was before Christ. We do it too. Peter's not the only knucklehead in the Christian her- uh, history book. We're going to be there too. Sometimes we turn around and do the very thing we desire not to do and we'll default back to the flesh if we don't walk in the spirit. It ends, take a look how this part transitions. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It says you and I were dead, but we're not anymore. So stop acting like a dead person. Stop sitting in your coffin says, get up and start going. But it wasn't us. Apparently, they had a little bit of pride going on, a little bit of arrogance. It says, look, man, for by grace you have been saved. Through your faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. It's not based upon how good you are, so that you do not boast. Boasting is a funny word. It, It means to be cocky or arrogant, to be bragging, to walk around just thinking, man, look how great I am and look how awesome I am. And apparently, why does he start off this chapter so harsh saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and so was I. If you thought you were pretty awesome and someone walks around, maybe you start hitting home runs all the time uh, in baseball and someone walks over and is like, hey, remember when you couldn't even hit a ball off the tee? You're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Sometimes we walk around pointing out people or even in our minds just making things up about, look at them. I'm so far above them. I'm reading more than them or I'm doing more than them or I love Jesus more than them or I worship louder than them. And the Lord this morning would tell us, hey, whoa, hold on. Remember when you were like them? Remember when you were afraid to lift your hands or you were afraid to lift your voice or you didn't care and open the word or you... You were there too. We were all there. We all had the same beginning, death. 
It's God who brought us to life with this boasting, not to be cocky or to be arrogant or to be bragging. He reminds them, he begins to transition. The church, if you're a believer, says, knock it off. Anything good in your life has been done because of God. We don't get to build our own kingdoms. And if we are building our own kingdoms, our eyes are fixed on the wrong prize. We're supposed to be building the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is a wild verse. You know what this means? Think about it. For it is God who works in you. So who's working in you? God, right? And what does that mean, in you? Like, he just like got his hammer and chisel like. What, what does it mean that he's working in you? He's, he's molding and shaping you into a correct Christian or into the image of Christ? Like a microorganism? Do you guys watch that old, old cartoon about the school bus, the magic school bus, and like shrinks down like, woo! I mean, I guess so. God's like, woo! And there's a lot of work to be done. If we're honest and we sit alone with the Lord and we look at our heart, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work. Maybe there's more planks in our own eyes than there are specks in our brothers. He says, stop being so cocky and arrogant and prideful. Stop bragging. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins at one time. For it is God who's worked in you. Anything good. Doesn't the Bible say every good and perfect gift is from above? Everything. Anything good in us works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Meaning, honestly, I can't even do anything good unless God even puts the idea in me first. Isn't that crazy? You can't even go take the trash out for your mom and bless her unless God gives you the idea to take the trash out and bless your mom. The idea wasn't even yours. You can't even have an idea to be part of the Christian club and help make it better without God first giving you the idea to make the Christian club better. It's impossible. God can't, or you didn't have a great idea to start treating your brother better. God puts that idea in you, both to will, and then you can't even do it unless he gives you the strength to do it. But the idea and the resources are from God. And because of this idea, when we walk around and we thank God for everything, Lord, thank you for helping me love my wife. Thank you for helping me love my kids. Thank you for helping me in the, the tasks that I'm to do. And people walk around and say, oh, man, Christianity, you guys are just weak. You need, Jesus is your crutch. You'll hear it off and on throughout your life that Christians, um, it's good for you but not for me. As if somehow we were weaker than them, right? Like, oh, I'm so glad you found something to help you, something to lean up against. And because you're a weaker person, you just lean on Jesus, but I'm strong enough. I don't need, need a God idea. Hey, hold, hold on. I personally, I'm kind of offended by that. Until I kind of realized, oh, I guess it's kind of true. Because when left up to me, I just mess things up. When it's left up to me to come up with good ideas, there are none. But when you begin to look to the Lord, he's got a lot. And let me ask you a question. Oh, it's weakness. Christians are weak. That's why they need God. Christians don't have any strength. That's why they need Jesus to be their crutch. Is it weak for a child to say they need their parents? Not weak. It's a reality. For a child to say, no, I need my mom and dad to take care of me. I need my mom and dad to feed me. And honestly, you guys are getting older. And it might be hard for some of you to, be like, to stand up in front of them and say, hey, you know what? I need my mom and dad. You might be tempted to think, I don't need them. 
Really? How much money do you make? How much food do you buy a month? How many of the clothes did you purchase with your own money? How do you get places other than inside their car? How do you, you can't even ride a bike unless it's the one they bought you. You can't walk unless you put on the shoes they purchased. You get it? You're like, no, no, I mean, that's true, but I'm not saying it. It's pride. You let it go. It's not weakness that causes a child to say, hey, I need my mom and dad. It's a reality. And in the same way, it's not weakness to say, man, I need Jesus. It's a reality because without him, before him, were we not dead in our trespasses and sins? It's not that we were weak. It's that we were dead. That we needed Jesus to bring life into the whole thing. It's amazing. What I want to spend the rest of our time at is this next verse. It's, it's one verse with a whole lot packed into it. Look at, uh, we'll start in verse 10, 9, but really verse 10. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. No bragging, no arrogance. For we are his workmanship. This is reason. No bragging. Why not? Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should simply walk in them. I want you to take just 10 seconds and think about how you would describe yourselves. Maybe, maybe the top five things, right? I'd like to think of myself, I don't know what. Uh, I'm a dad. I'm a father. Um, I like being outside. I like outdoors kinds. I don't know if I'm an outdoorsman, but I pretend to be. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not funny. I wish I was, but I'm just not. Um, I don't know. How, how would you describe yourself? Think about it for a moment. Some of the words that maybe you would pick. Is one of them a follower of Jesus? The way you see your life and the way you see yourself, are you following Jesus? How do we identify ourselves? The world's pulling all the time. Tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a constant desire to fit in with somebody. We have our friend or our group, the way we dress, how we act. We want to fit in. The reality is the only person we're supposed to fit in with is Jesus. And if other people want to fit in with Jesus, then sweet. We'll have an awesome group of people to be with and to hang out with. But when we identify ourselves, do we identify ourselves as being in Christ? Or are we in the world? Are we in that group of popularity? Are we in that group of fill in the blank? I don't know. When he says we are his workmanship, this is a crazy, crazy cool word. Uh, the word in its original writings in Greek was poema, right? It sounds like poem. It's a cool word. It means this, the, the workmanship. It means the art or skill of a craftsman. It is his masterpiece. When we talk about his masterpiece, something that is of immense value, it is irreplaceable, kind of a, a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-duplicated, uh, unique piece of work. Irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind creation. When you read that, it says, we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind creation. Individually, you are his individual masterpiece. Why do you think there's not another person like you? What? I don't know. No one. No one is as weird 
or different or unique or strange or whatever, however you feel, when I, I'm like, man, no one is as weird as Dave. Or no one is as the exact height and weight and dimensions and, you know, the whole fingerprint thing, right? Not only do all 10 of your fingerprints not match up, they're all different, but how many people are in the world now? Six, bil- six point something billion? Really close to seven? It's got to be close to seven by now. It's over seven. Let's call it seven billion people, and let's assume most of them have all 10 fingers, all right? What is that, 70 billion fingerprints and none of them match? That's crazy. They don't match up. Our DNA, it doesn't match up. It's all different. It's all unique. It's who you are. God says, nope, I made one. You are an irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind masterpiece, and it's so perfect, I'm not even going to try and duplicate it, and I'll make another one, and this is unique and irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind creation, and another one, and another one, and, and that's you guys. That's me. I, I, it's amazing to think I am a one-of-a-kind irreplaceable, that if David Axe was to be run over by a train or shot, or just choke on banana cream pie or something awesome. Like, that's it. There's no more Davids on the shelf to go replace the one standing here right now. You're it. That if something were to happen to you today, and you were to cease from living on earth, and you were to be in the presence of the Lord, there's no one to fill your spot. God doesn't have a backup. You are his masterpiece, his work of art, his one-of-a-kind creation. It's amazing. Now, how do you think he feels about that? Like, I don't know about you. Have you guys ever put your blood, sweat, and tears into something? I mean, you just work hard on it. Maybe it's a sport or an instrument, or maybe you are into art of some kind, and so you've painted or, or worked on something. Aren't you proud of it? Don't you love it and cherish it? I mean, goodness, you hit home run, the ball goes in a glass case up on a shelf so everyone can see it and it's not going to get messed up by the dust. And it's awesome. And God says, no, 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 you are my masterpiece. It's not that, oh, yeah, he loves us. Like one of the many things he has, we are a one-of-a-kind creation with a -a one-of-a-kind calling. Paul says, you are created, you are his workmanship, his masterpiece, irreplaceable, one of a kind. But how does God mold and shape us? If he's working in us to to will and to do for his good pleasure and and we are his workmanship, how did he get us to where we are? And how's he going to get us to where he wants us to be? You guys ever see someone, how many of you guys went to the night of Bethlehem down here? There's a lady making pottery, throwing pots, the clay. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that happen. Um, she was my mother-in-law, but it's awesome. If you see people use clay and begin to shape it and mold it, it takes brush, pressure on both sides. You can't just, a, a one-handed person is going to have a hard time making a pot or a vase or a bowl out of clay because you have to have one hand on the inside and one hand on the outside and equal amounts of pressure begin to stretch and pull and, and reshape that ball of clay. In the same way, God has one hand on the inside and one hand on the outside. He has our heart and the things in this world, and he will use them to push and to pull and to grow and to shape. It's amazing. I think there's four basic ways that God wants to do that as we are his one-of-a-kind. Isn't it crazy? No one in the world has ever lived the life I lived. 
and no one ever will. No one will. No one will be married to my wife the way I am. No one will be father to my kids. You can have kids. You just won't have mine. No one will live the same way or you guys understand? No one's going to, down to the littlest of things. I mean, you begin to plot out your life where you went to breakfast and then whose house you hung out with and then you got a flat tire so you had to sit there and wait for your mom to pick you up and then she was mad because you were late but it wasn't your fault and you're hungry now because it's lunchtime and, and whatever. That your whole entire, just start plotting it out. No one's come close to living your life. No one could touch it with the experience. And in the same way, that'll continue to happen, that God will plot it out and mold and shape and lead and guide, I think, four kind of basic ways. The first one, oftentimes, is trials. God uses trials in our lives, short-term trials and long-term trials. What's a, what's a short-term trial? David and Goliath, right? And within about 24 hours, this thing begins and ends. Short-term trial. David shows up. Goliath's down there like, ho, 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 you puny people. Let's see what you got. Come on down. Let's do this thing. David's like, that's unacceptable. Let's go take his head off. And he does. Isn't it awesome? Well, David didn't have a sword. I know. He used the enemy's sword to take off the enemy's head. It's amazing. Short-term trials. But God does that. Some, sometimes there's uh, an event in our lives, big or small. It can be that flat tire. It could be a failed test you thought you were going to ace. It can be someone in your life that stabs you in the back. It can be a variety of things. But short-term trials, guys, God's in it. Long-term trials. Isn't it interesting? You guys have read the story, or I hope heard about it, when they were looking for a new king, and Jesse, David's dad, sits down, and all the brothers are brought up. You guys are familiar with this story? Samuel comes to anoint him, and he's mistaken. He's all wrong in the beginning, and he's sitting there scratching his head. And then eventually David comes up, and he's anointed king over Israel at a very young age, before David and Goliath. Isn't it wild? David was anointed king before he ever even fought the battle as a servant. Weird. God said, he's the man. Boom. Oil, pray, anointed, all that stuff. And then he goes back to the sheepfold. You think a crown would be put on his head and a, a golden chair to sit in and he's king. The anointing came way before the opportunity. The calling came way before the opportunity. He went back to the field and he tended the sheep and he went to check on his brothers and ended up killing a giant but years went by he was anointed as king for a long time before he became king there's things in our lives we just want to happen and sometimes we believe man god's going to do something in my life i know it when is it going to be when is it going to be when is it going to be well it's beginning those little things we talked about it's not just the big things. It's how he treated the sheep. It's how he got to the position that he was in. But trials, sometimes they're short. Sometimes they're long. Don't give up. I think another thing that God definitely uses is opportunities. Opportunities, man. When Peter was on the Temple Mount, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel. That wasn't planned. And it wasn't a trial. It was an opportunity to do something awesome. You think about the Good Samaritan, right? You know the story. A bunch of great people come along and do nothing for this guy who was left for dead. Beat up, robbed, left on the side of the road. And this guy's enemy comes trudging along. He's like, oh, that guy looks kind of messed up. Oh, and he stops and he gives up his own goods and he pays the doctor from his own wallet and he takes care of this guy. Opportunities. 
You ever wonder how many opportunities God gives us in a week? I really wonder. What's an opportunity? Think of it. Simple opportunities. The Samaritan uh, just was going along the road one day. He had his own thing to do, and there was someone in need. If that's how we define an opportunity for a moment, think about it. What's an opportunity? What are opportunities you guys have in your week? You're just going along, and something comes up. Tempted to cheat? I'm going to call. I'm going to throw that into the trial pot. All right, that's a trial. You uh, tell me I'm wrong. Temptation to cheat and do something dumb? That's a temp, that's a trial. You're being tried in that moment. What, which one are you going to be? You're being tested. You're going to go for righteousness or for Lucifer, Satan? What do you think? Have you guys ever had that? Like they're digging in their pockets because they're a quarter shy, and you're like, oh, I got a ton of quarters, but I want a gumball or something. Like, all the, all the time. What else? I mean, definitely opportunities to show your faith. But that's a huge one. Have you guys ever just been asked straight up, like, hey, what do you believe? Or you go to church? Simple thing. Simple. Hey, do you go to church? You believe in Jesus? We have opportunities all the time, little ones. They're unforeseen. What else? What happens in life? Think about it. You guys play sports? Who plays sports? How many of you guys play sports? Holy cow. Who doesn't play sports? All right. That's fine. Sports don't make or break anybody. They mold and shape people, just like not doing sports does. So on the sports field, you're running along, doing your thing. You can give opportunities on the field. What are they? Sitting in the dugout, learning to share your faith. Look, I don't know how to diminish or, or to do it without lessening the intensity of how important it is to share our faith. But if we won't live it first, why in the world would anybody listen to it? I'm with you guys, sitting in the dugout or on the sidelines, you could share your faith, but you could also you know, share your Coke or take someone out to lunch. Or if someone trips, you could maybe not laugh and point at them and make fun of them and maybe even help them up. Or you guys understand? The world needs the gospel, but they need to hear it from someone who has shown it. I'm not saying stop talking about it, but we've got to start showing it opportunities. God's molding and shaping not only people around us by the opportunities, but us. Because if we were honest, aren't opportunities scary? To me, opportunities freak me out. You'll start driving, you'll go to gas. I don't know, more and more lately, I go to gas stations and homeless people are there. And it's like, oh man, <laughs> you can feel the Lord. Talk to him, right? Ah. Isn't it funny? You start arguing with God about doing something totally great, and you know he's in it. Opportunities. And with our trials, you either grow, you're going to grow. When trials come, like David and Goliath are having to wait and endure for a really long time, you're either going to grow bitter or you're going to trust the Lord and surrender. So trials do. Trials will either cause you to grow more bitter or they'll cause you to surrender. And surrender is amazing. Opportunities, you begin to understand how God works, his heartbeat, and and his, his desire for people and how he meets our needs. A fun one is discipline. God molds and shapes us through discipline. How does God discipline us, though? Does he curse you with cancer and 
rub your face in disease. Okay. God broke his leg. Do you guys hear a story? He said, okay. My dad used to be super like into basketball and got more and more addicted to basketball, and pretty soon he wasn't going to church, and all he was doing was playing basketball. And he says, so because of that, God broke my leg. So you're telling me God showed up with a baseball bat and broke his knee. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I, I cannot tell you God will not take things away. If a child's playing with a loaded shotgun, would a good father not take it away? Dude, I would grab that thing so fast. <laughs> Are you kidding? Or if a little kid's about to fall off a cliff, you might hurt his shoulder, but you're going to grab his arm and yank on it, man. Right? I hope. You're like, oh, I don't want to hurt his shoulder. Ah. Like, <laughs> And so if necessary, God will do extreme things if we make him. God doesn't go zero to 100 instantaneously. Remember we talked about God doesn't have a quick temper. But, but let's just say, let's take that for an example. Let's say God was like, dude, I've been reminding you and calling out to you uh, in a variety of ways. Let's talk about that. And so I'm taking basketball from you. How does God do that? Shows up with a baseball bat one night. How does, guys, how does God discipline? He might have been going for a jog and he tripped, definitely. Extra wax on the, <laughs> the floor was extra slippery. Maybe he tripped on a shoelace. Now look, if God will go to those extremes, but he doesn't start there, how else does God discipline us? How else does God discipline us? How do your... Di- Okay, let me ask you this. How do your parents discipline you? Before they get out the belt or lock you in the dungeon, is that all they do? Like, you come home and you're, like, in a bad mood, so you just get beat? Like, I hope not. So how do your parents, what are forms of discipline? Now, how do they share their disappointment? They just communicate it, right? Right? Hey, I'm bummed with you. I thought, actually, I didn't think. I know you're, I've been through this. I've had to be on both sides of this. Man, I expected more from you because you are more. Stop sitting in the coffin. You're alive. It's, guys, God will send people into your life to say, hey, you're messing up. You're fine. But God will send people into your life and they won't even know they're doing it. They won't. They'll just be like, hey, man, um, I heard about this guy who's, man, playing sports more, and he's, he's starting to stop going to church, and all of a sudden, um, man, God broke his leg. And you're sitting in here being like, loser, probably tripped on his shoelace. What if today God's saying, hey, you're idolizing the diamond and not Jesus? And you're like, oh, maybe today's a reminder. Maybe God's today. It's like, hey, you better watch your heart. But God will send people to encourage you. God will send people to tell you things. And then God will send people to to straight up call you out. He will. Say, hey, you're slacking in these areas. Or, hey, you're doing something wrong. Or you're falling short. Or you're drifting away. God does not end at this radical form of discipline. 
but he will discipline us. He will take things away if necessary, but I would encourage you, start listening to the Lord before it gets to that point. You know about Cain, right? Cain and Abel, little brotherly conflict called murder. (laughs) Did God not discipline Cain? Oh, man, Cain had to wander the earth for the rest of his life. God cursed him. That's it. I warned you. Perfect example. Is it awesome? Cain's all upset and mad, and God's like, hey, man, you better be careful because he says sin's lying at your door, meaning it's right there. It's almost inside. Be careful, Cain. Cain totally ignores God, goes outside, kills his brother, so now God brings a bigger form of discipline. He started simple, hey, be careful. He wasn't. He ignored God, and so now because of what he did, now discipline comes, and he has to walk the earth, and and he never has a real place to settle down. Um, You know, David had this little fling with a lady named Bathsheba. He thought she was pretty, and so did a variety of, had her husband killed, she got pregnant, kind of opposite order yes no because of his sin and everything that happened his child died discipline's real but if we let it it will mold and shape us oftentimes tell me i'm wrong you can tell between kids that have been disciplined and those that have not go to toys R Us. you can pick out real quickly kids that respect mom and dad and kids that own them we don't own god He's our Father who is in heaven, and He's holy. We are His workmanship, His one-of-a-kind creation, which means we didn't make ourselves, by the way. Um, the other, the fourth thing, I think, so trials, opportunities, sometimes discipline, but don't despise it. Learn from it. Blessings. God uses blessings to mold and shape us. It's true. God... God will bless us and remind us of who he is. It shows his love and his care and his thoughtfulness and his compassion. You know about Solomon? What did he ask for? God said, Solomon, dude, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And we'd, we'd all be like, Lamborghini. I want an airplane. I want a grizzly bear. Like, I don't know. I want to ride a pterodactyl. Like, I hope there's pterodactyls in heaven. I want to fly on one so bad. But, right, I mean, think about it. Think, Solomon's literally anything you can imagine. What do you want? Solomon says, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom so that I know how to do what you've called me to do. God says, man, now that is amazing. When our heart is right, God can bless us. When our heart is wrong, he'll discipline us. When our heart is right, sometimes God will bless us. It's not a promise of prosperity, but man, God blesses his children. What kind of dad doesn't from time to time? We learn of God's provision and care, but guys, when we identify ourselves, do we identify ourselves in Christ? When you have a a masterpiece, a -a one-of-a-kind limited edition David Axe, what does it mean? It means God invested all of who he was into everything I am means that God invested all that he had into who you are, literally. He died so that you may have life. How did we ever go from that dead corpse, from our trespasses and sins to being made alive? Because he invested everything he was into who 
we are. You are his masterpiece. There's not one thing left undone. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing that needs to be changed. He says, no, this is perfect. This is beautiful. This is amazing. And when we begin to devalue it is when we begin to make the decisions we shouldn't. Think of it. We talk about workmanship, that limited edition, one-of-a-kind, irreplaceable work of art. I don't really like the Mona Lisa very much, but apparently it's a really big deal. Uh, I wouldn't hang that in my house. But you can't buy it. You can buy copies of it, but you cannot. Why? There's only one like it. And isn't it, you guys ever, anybody ever try and paint or try and draw? And actually, you know, something you kind of like? I've done that. I've drawn something like, hey, I kind of like that. I'm going to draw it again. I can't. It's like, how did I do that? It's, it's similar, but it's totally different. Thank God we're similar, right? We all have two eyes. What if some of you had like 10 eyes? You're like, hey. <laughs> that's not a masterpiece. That's a weirdo. Like, but think about it. God says, you are my masterpiece. One of a kind, limited edition, never to be duplicated. And when it's gone, it cannot be replaced. I've invested everything I have into you. I love you. I cherish you. I bless you. I'm going to lead and guide and mold and shape you. You are every, there's nothing I care about more in all creation or eternity than you. Isn't it amazing? If God could sit here and say one thing, I think that's, he would say, guys, principalities and powers, heaven and earth, eternity and beyond, there's nothing I love more than you. You are my masterpiece. I poured my life out for you. No one else. Nothing else. No angel, no demon, no principality, no power. You're it. And nothing can separate you from the love that I have. And so you are like a Mona Lisa, or whatever the manly version is. But if we were the Mona Lisa, or you walk into the museum... No one in their right mind would take a cup of acid and just pour it all over the painting, right? Why would you do that? Why not? No big deal. No big deal. It's going to eat away the paint and destroy the canvas, and it's going to deteriorate the image, and it can't be replaced. It's not like, oh, just get another one. There isn't another one. Or you wouldn't walk in with a machete and you'd be like, shing, 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 paper mache. Like, you wouldn't do that. Why? It's irreplaceable. It's one of a kind. And when it goes away, it cannot be replaced. You are God's masterpiece. You're it. He poured his life into you, and yet we'll turn around and fill our lives full of alcohol, which is poison. Or we'll get super down and we'll cut ourselves. Or we will... Be empty and fill it with something. God says, what are you doing? I poured my life into you. You are my masterpiece. I can't replace you. You're it. You're it. He understands the pain or the sorrow or the temptation, but you are his masterpiece says, you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive and you are his workmanship created in Christ 
Jesus, the way, a, right, doesn't a baby grow inside of its mother's womb? I had a hard time thinking, created in Christ, what does this mean? What's it look like, created in Christ? And I was like, oh, okay, a baby grows until it's ready to be born. It's growing in its mother's tummy, its womb. And the same way God says, I have you. And I'm molding you and I'm shaping you and you are mine. And not until you are ready, but I'll bring you home. You are my masterpiece, irreplaceable. So be very careful. God's not looking to get rid of any one of us. He's madly in love with every one. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were dead. We're not now. Now we're alive. Paul says, get up. He says, get up and stop living a life that looks like a corpse. Quit playing with the world You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. He has made you alive. You are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his poema. He's poured everything into you. And so walk accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, nowhere near as much as you love us, but we love you. Lord, and would confess, I think, all too often, I I know I do, I forget that you would somehow call me your masterpiece. And for some this morning, Lord, maybe they've never known. They've never known they're irreplaceable. They've never known that you weep over their brokenness and Lord, that you've never taken your eye off of them, that you can count every freckle and hair on their head. Lord, that they are your masterpiece. But Lord, regardless of the world's opinion or our personal perspective of it all, Lord, thank you that you would take someone dead like us and invest your life into us that we would live again. Today, I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Today, if on the inside, you're broken and there's hurt and there's pain and there's suffering and there's emptiness and you just want Jesus, Lord, take it away. He says, ask, ask. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. I'll give you rest. And today, if that's you, if you're, I need to come to Jesus. I just want to pray for you. That's all I want to do. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or anything crazy. If that's you, I want to ask you to raise your hand real high. No one's looking. You're free. Raise your hand to Jesus, honestly, right on. Lord, those today that, (laughs) crazy, we don't feel like your masterpiece. Sometimes we don't feel all that love. 
So, Lord, thank you that our feelings do not change truth. God, would your spirit comfort them, fill them to overflowing. Lord, that there would just be truly the joy of the Lord would rise among them. Lord, that today would be a new day. And Lord, for those that are hurting, those that maybe they're walking in sin, Lord, would they give it up? And today's your opportunity, guys, to give it up. As we close in the song of worship, give it up. Give it to him. Let it go. You were dead, not anymore. Our position is not our past. It's our future. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.